You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas, where it is currently raining. Um, Joining me today is uh, assistant professor of English Michael Farmer, Dr. Michael Farmer uh, from Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, What's the weather like there, Michael? been frozen rain most of the day. I think it's switching to rain, and then it'll be snowing for the next three days. Ugh. Well, that's lame. Also with us is Assistant Professor of English Dr. Nathan Gilmore at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Uh, Tell us you have better weather than us, Nathan. Oh, it is the season of pollen and high 70s here in Georgia, so the older faculty are complaining about the emergence of short shorts and i have to tell them once again that i taught at uga for six years i don't even see them anymore yeah they don't get to complain well no no no. it's just i you know i i've i taught so long with girls showing their behinds in class that it just doesn't even register with me anymore (laughs) awesome well the season is well, in some places, the seasons are changing. Yeah, no frozen rain here. <laughs> that, that is a change, I should say. I mean, that it's rain at all, frozen or otherwise, is different. Okay, well, that's good. Well, good. Maybe things are maybe things are looking up. Maybe the the spring robins will haunt your house or something. Um, well, before we head on to our topic, uh, have we got any feedback um, this week? Um, well, our, not obviously not on our last episode because our last episode posted this morning. So right, right. But, yeah, I mean the the only you know, and I mean it's it's sort of quasi feedback, but I still appreciate it that uh, Trip Fuller is t- still tweeting every time that he listens to one of our episodes, which is every week. Uh, so all of those homebrewed Christianity listeners who have come over here on Trip's recommendation, welcome, uh, and be sure to tell Trip thank you on our behalf. Awesome. Uh, anything else we want to announce or declare or, I don't know, praise, threaten? Uh, anything else before we dive into it? Well, by the time this episode drops, we should be well into the uh, purgatory experiment on the blog. I'm trying to write brief blog posts on the sections of purgatory as I teach them in my literature classes. So hopefully uh, those people who have wanted to sort of read through books together will have that opportunity to and hopefully in the future we'll give a little bit more advance notice than a few days so that people can sort of block that time off. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Well, we, we look forward to this uh, purgatorial excursion. <laughs> <laughs> um, this week we are not going to be, uh, well, we're going we're gonna to be sticking with the, the P letter in the alphabet, but not purgatory. We're going to hang out with Pooh, 
which that might have a, some some purgatorial sort of uh, implications too. <laughs> no, um, purgatory suggests you get somewhere after it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right, excellent. Good start there. Good start. Um, this is a request, uh, Charles H, our uh, our b- beloved Canadian listener. Um, uh, who uh, last time I heard was taking turns uh, beating you and being beaten by you uh, at at chess, Nathan. Oh yeah, I mean he plays good. Ch- well, I mean I won't say he plays good chess because he plays about even with me, which can't be all that great. But it's good to play <laughs> chess with Charles H. All right. Anyway, uh, Charles H. requested uh, a while back requested an episode on Poe, and uh, occasionally when we know the song, we play requests. Um, so yeah, here, here goes, um, and it goes a little pit- something like this. <laughs> and, and in my head, we started playing sweet home Alabama because that's, that's the <laughs> song that always gets requests requested at concerts when I was growing up. Anyway. Well, we got our, we got our theme music this week. It'll befuddle everybody until they get to this point. Oh, that's true. <laughs> awesome. I, I'm feeling a little state patriotic right now. Statriotic? Anyway. Okay, neat segue. Um, and I'm going to pitch this at you, Michael. Um, Poe is, he's a well-known author. Um, but in this case, most of what is well-known is pretty sordid. Probably for that reason, um, students I've had in the past kind of blur the lines between Poe and his narrators. Uh, maybe, maybe they're onto something. Maybe that's a completely inappropriate thing to do. So I'm going to let you be our MythBuster for a second and tell us if there's anything about Poe that we know that ain't so. Okay. Um, well, blurring the line between Poe and his narrators, I think, is, is a problem. But, I mean, it's almost always a problem, right? There's, there's very few authors you should actually read their fiction as autobiography, and we should just get out of the way at the front. Poe probably didn't kill anybody. I've never heard that <laughs> seriously alleged. Uh, he was probably not insane uh, in the way that many of his narrators are insane. I'm going to address a few pop cultural like knowledge tidbits about Poe and see what we can do with them. Um, the first is that he married his 13-year-old cousin. Indeed he did. <laughs> he was 26. <laughs> uh, she was 13. I believe they put on the wedding uh, the marriage license that she was 21. So that is absolutely true. She did uh, die of tuberculosis rather young. I don't remember the exact age she was, but she did not live long, and this threw Poe into a tailspin. Uh, but that that part is absolutely true. So if you've heard Poe married his 13-year-old cousin and wondered if it was true, yes, indeed it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've Ooh. probably also heard that Poe was a drug addict. Um, this, I don't think there's one shred of evidence to back up. Now, um, I think he threatened to commit suicide with laudanum once, and we talked about laudanum in the Coleridge episode, but it is a combination of alcohol and opium. It was used commonly as a medical treatment during the early 19th century. So there's no doubt that he probably mm. took laudanum here and there, as almost everybody else did. I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that he was actually addicted to opium in any meaningful sense of that term. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about alcohol? Uh, certainly, Poe was at various points in his life a problem drinker. 
I, I am mm-hmm. not sure that he would fit the medical definition of alcoholic today, mostly because I'm not sure what that medical definition is. <laughs> mm. But he did quit drinking. Charles, this is where we need your counsel. <laughs> he did quit drinking for years. Um, he, 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 as I said, when Virginia died, he went into a tailspin and, and he did drink heavily um, for the few years following her death. And then he stopped, apparently cold turkey, for a very long time. So um, mm. I, I don't think it's right. The the pop cultural presentation of Poe is this kind of mad alcoholic. I mean, if you're looking for mad alcoholics, there are no short of them, no shortage of them in American literature. Poe's probably <laughs> not your guy. Okay. I, I would suggest F. Scott Fitzgerald. Right. This who's is a, not the drunk you're looking for. Who's a better writer anyway? Um, Finally, his death. Now, his death for a long time was chalked up to some sort of alcohol poisoning. Uh, that rumor was actually started by one of his enemies, a guy named... <laughs> oh, I've forgotten what it is now. I, I had it. Oh, uh, hold up. I've, I've got my Poe front matter up here. Um, oh, now I can't find it, Michael. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's. I think it's W.S. Godwin or, so, or something like mm-hmm. that. Anyway, one of his enemies right. who, who somehow... He's the guy that called everyone Hitler who somehow ended up being the executor of his estate. Oh. <laughs> Imagine that. That's a terrible move. <laughs> is is, is the, the one who started that rumor. I don't think very many scholars anymore take it seriously. However, the circumstances of his death are now shrouded in mystery. Nobody really quite knows how he died. He uh, They found him in a ditch one morning, I believe. Um, for a while, they <laughs> thought it was rabies. But uh, apparently there is a record of him drinking a glass of water the night before. And people who are about to die from rabies don't drink water. Ah, is that yeah. true? Yeah, it's called hydrophobia. It's a, it's a major mm-hmm. symptom oh, okay. of rabies. So yeah. it, it probably wasn't <laughs> rabies. It may have been some sort of brain-destroying disease. It could have been syphilis or, uh, you know, there was a cholera outbreak in, the, in uh, Baltimore around that time. So he may have had cholera. Nobody quite knows. Um, is probably probably not alcohol related. The other theory is, if it was alcohol related, is that there was a common practice. He died on election night, and there was a common practice of either paying or forcing people to go from poll to poll voting over and over again for one person. And you know, if indeed he was involved in this, they would have uh, they would have gotten him pretty drunk and then beaten him up. And and one school of thought says he may have died from that. I've even heard it said that he uh, went into a diabetic coma, but I don't think there's any... You know, it's hard to do medical analyses of people who have been dead for 150 years. <laughs> true. Very so, true. So his death is shrouded in mystery. I don't think he died of abject alcoholism the way people sometimes suggest he did. If, he, if his death was alcohol-related, I suspect it was something more akin to the... Uh, I think they're called Coopers, the guys who were forced to go from pole to pole voting. Mm. Uh, Finney Moore's guys, yeah. Mm. Did so, I hit everything you wanted to hit, David? Say what? Did I hit everything you wanted to hit? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so I'm going to pitch a couple things at you. These are, these are things that have been thrown at me, um, kind of generalizations. When students who are saying, um, because of his young, beautiful, and dead wife, that's why there are all these young, beautiful, and dead women in post stories. And then wanting to, building off of that popular notion of alcoholism, 
wanting to attribute especially the alcoholism in the black cat or i think maybe impa the perverse too to to that as well i mean i mean does that is that in any way plausible Poe no doubt drew from the circumstances of his life, but if you read his essays about writing, he talks about trying to turn individual events into universal emotions. Ah, okay. And, and I mean, the recurrence of young, beautiful, dead women is very difficult to ignore, right? I mean, it, it shows up again <laughs> and again. Although I think, oddly enough, it, it begins before Virginia dies, although she was sickly. She had tuberculosis, so um, he may right. have seen it coming. I... I I, I would say that, you know, those images come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. But, uh, okay. you know, that's not the same thing as saying his works are autobiographical. You know, the only piece of straight autobiography I could find, and I meant to have this open, and of course I don't, um, is from Fall of the House of Usher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he gives a self-portrait. When he's talking about Roderick Usher, he, he, if you listen to this description, uh, it seems to me to be a description of Poe himself. Um, a cadaverous of complexion, a ca- get, uh, excuse me, a cadaverousness of complexion, an eye large, liquid, and luminous beyond comparison, lips somewhat thin and very pallid, but of a surpassingly beautiful curve, a nose of a delicate Hebrew model, but with a breadth of nostril unusual in similar formations, a finely molded chin, speaking in its want of prominence of a want of moral energy. Hair of more than web-like softness and tenuity. These features within an inordinate expansion above the regions of the temple made up a countenance not easily to be forgotten. And if you, you know, if you look at pictures of Poe or think of the famous one you've probably seen, uh, that, mm-hmm. you know, is not an, not an inaccurate description of himself. Does that mean he is Roderick Usher? Of course not. But it means that he's drawing on himself for some of these characters, just like every author does. Yeah. Though it does kind of creep me out a little bit if he thinks his lips are that beautiful. That's that's a little unsettling. Well, he's an unsettling guy. That's true, true, true enough. Well, biography is one thing, um, but material conditions are another. So I'm going to pitch this one at you, Nathan. Mm-hmm. Um, Poe was pretty well integrated into the world of publishing and criticism. Uh, to a greater degree than uh, I think a lot of the writers that we've talked about. Um, can understanding this environment and Poe's career in it make us better readers of Poe? Uh, I think it certainly gives him a context, and that's always important. Uh, Poe's literary career really happened in some of the big literary centers of 19th century America. So he spent a span of time in Richmond, Virginia. He spent a span of time in Baltimore, uh, spent a t- spent some time in Philadelphia, spent some time in New York City. I mean, really, I mean, right there you're talking about, you know, four of the big publishing cities. And moreover, mm-hmm. as he was writing his poetry and his stories, uh, he was working at a string of magazines. Uh, so he was someone who knew firsthand uh, what sorts of things people were reading. He knew firsthand uh, what sorts of things were selling magazines. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, you know, if one of your hangups with Poe uh, is that he seems to be writing for um, too broad an audience, I think that that at least makes that intelligible, uh, even if in one's mind it doesn't make it excusable. Uh, now, as far as, you know, the the place of these things in his autobiography, you know, as uh, Michael already touched on, you know, as he was 
making his career, if you will, uh, as a magazine man and as a man of letters. Uh, he also, I'm sure, had at least a passing awareness, and I would say a, a pretty strong awareness of the fact that figures like uh, Byron and Shelley uh, really had their careers propelled by the fact that they were men of scandal. Uh, mm. So, you know, I've got to think that the, autobiogra the autobiographical stereotypes that Michael was uh, variously, you know, confirming and shooting down early on uh, are at least a, a at least partly a function of his placement in that magazine culture. Yeah. Now, I, I have to admit, I mean, my my familiarity of, you know, uh, court literature of 14th century England is a lot stronger than my knowledge of magazine literature of 19th century America. Michael, is there anything that you would add to that? We can't forget how mercenary Poe is. He uh, he occasionally talks as though he had big aspirations to write something um, important, in quotation marks. But mm -hmm. really what he wanted to do was make a living, and he was willing to do pretty much anything he had to do to do that. Mm -hmm. So he conceives of some of his stories, some of his most famous stories, really um, directly for mercenary reasons. And and the other thing he does is because he's constantly hard up for money, he's forever writing stories, abandoning them in the middle of writing them, and then publishing them anyway. <laughs> so um, nice. the, the okay. second the second well, of his detective I'll, stories. Oh, go ahead. Uh, um, the mystery of Marie Rouget just cuts off. It doesn't have an ending. There's no solution to the murder mystery. And as far as I can tell, that is because Poe gave up on it. <laughs> Didn't keep him from publishing it. When you own the magazine, you got the uh, got that right. Although I, I shouldn't say that because I don't know if Mystery of Marie, Marie Rouget was published in one of his magazines or not. Uh-huh. Go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. The, the other thing he did as an editor, which is kind of awesome, is if he, if he had uh, open space in his magazine... And nothing to fill it, he would just make something up. <laughs> so, so one month, That's I know, great. he published a long article analyzing the handwriting of famous American authors, talking about how their handwriting reflected their their you know ideas and their personalities, which is kind of cool. Except it was completely made up, and he wasn't even looking at their handwriting. It was all, it was all him. Another time, he published his own marginalia in somebody else's book and just published that as an article. So I mean, the the Library of America edition of Poe, everything he wrote is two volumes, and the first volume is poems and tales and his three most famous essays, and then the whole second volume is just literary criticism, including crazy crap like that. Uh huh. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Michael. I mean, uh, you know, I, I definitely get a sense that he is uh, playing up his own crazy for the sake of, you know, creating a reputation and making a living. Uh, from what you can tell, I mean, is this a, I won't say uniquely, but more so than usual, uh, mercenary move on his part? Or is this, you know, about par for the course when you put him next to a Byron or a Shelley or someone like that? My guess is he is – there are a number of Poe-like figures in the magazine culture of that era. It's just okay. Poe happens to be the one who became Poe. You know, he, he's the one who got canonized. Okay. I th I, I, my guess is he is not unique, but he's the only one we still read. But I'm not an expert on that on that culture, so I don't know. Okay. 
now this this dude who hated him, um, his enemy, who somehow became the one who uh, became the, the 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 one who ran his estate after he died. Now, d- did he not make this enemy through literary criticism? Was this not one of the people that he like bashed? Uh, pr- probably. To be honest, I don't know. He made a lot of enemies. There were a lot of people who did not like him. And the name, by the way, was not Godwin, but Griswold. Ah, okay. okay. I, I I thought I remember having read that 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 you know that that this guy who ended up being sort of responsible for maintaining his his posthumous reputation was in fact an enemy that he'd made through through the publishing industry through through magazines. In which case, I mean, that's like the worst thing. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't doubt that. I, I don't want to say it for sure because I don't know. I, like I said, he had a lot of enemies. And he mm-hmm. he wrote some really vicious literary criticism. It's You read some of that, and it's it's no surprise people didn't like him. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, most famously, uh, he accuses Hawthorne of um, stealing from him for oh. Twice Told Tales, which is, as far as I can tell, balderdash, <laughs> as was so much else that Poe did. <laughs> uh well one one thing that that always surprises uh my students which you alluded to is the fact that I mean they read a lot of post stories and they think this man is absolutely crazy these must be stories that people you know found in some kind of badly written you know bloody manuscript found in a basement surrounded by bodies and in fact it was it was stuff that sold at the time that was basically written because it was the kind of stuff that was selling and that, and that, and that kind of baffles them. But then I draw their attention to how many, you know, how many sequels saw has, and then they're like, Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or, I mean, for that matter, he's Johnny Depp, right? Or Tim Burton. He's this kind of self-consciously weird, gothic persona of a person. Mm Hmm. Well, I mean, Thanks to him, a Tim Burton or a Johnny Depp can exist in some ways, I think. Right, right. But I'm saying yeah. he has no more artistic... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Credibility. <laughs> Credibility is not, not the right word. Um, authenticity than, uh, than Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. We, uh, culture has not fallen to go from Poe to Burton. <laughs> okay. And I don't mean that to praise Tim Burton. <laughs> just as it's more of the same kind of self-consciously weird you know for the sake of mystique uh, kind of thing right okay well I guess we should talk about you know him and you know kind of literarily not just personally um, to me one of the most striking things about Poe uh, Poe's fiction especially is his use of first person narrators. Um, and I do, I, I appreciate the, the kinds of things that he can do with the eye in a story. So, um, could you point us to some of those notable eyes and, and, you know, say some things about, uh, this, this feature of his fiction? My, um, the, I took a Poe class in, in my doctoral program and I, my, my paper happened to be about, well, I guess it was about Poe, but I, I made heavy use of these I, these first-person narrators because one of the things they almost all do, especially in the horror and adventure stories, and you know, Poe's Poe's stories fall into four or five categories. 
the, the there's the horror stories. There's the what he calls tales of ratiation, the detective stories. There's the uh, adventure stories. There's the comedy stories. <laughs> um, but but especially in these horror and adventure stories, one of the things his narrators generally do is they start off by telling you they're not crazy. Mm, yeah. Um, so most famously, this happens at the beginning of the Telltale Heart, right? I mean, he he says, "Why will you call me mad? I am not mad. I'm all these other things. I I'm super sensitive to to uh, you know spiritual reality, but I'm not I'm not crazy." And they they all they all do that, which is an interesting enough move. I mean, because even his adventure stories typically have really fantastic elements to them. Um, mm-hmm. So there's one called MS found in a bottle where uh, the guy gets sucked into a whirlpool on a ship and ends up in this weird kind of no man's land. And again, it, he's always he, he so his his narrators are always telling you that they're uh, they're sane. And sometimes you believe them, especially in the adventure stories. It, it seems reasonable enough. And sometimes, um, as in the Telltale Heart. Uh, it's a real struggle to believe them. So Poe does not invent the unreliable narrator, but he makes full use of it, and mm-hmm. and maybe maybe he perfects it. I mean, there may be no more unreliable narrator than the one in the Telltale Heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was trying to think how many of his stories don't have first-person narrators, and there's one where the narrator isn't the central figure. Um, Fall of the House of Usher is like that, right? I mean, Roderick Usher yeah. doesn't narrate that story. His unnamed mm. friend does, and the narrator is always unnamed. Um, but I don't think he has any written in the third person that I can remember. Uh, um, Metzinger Stein. I was about to say I bet Metzinger Stein. Uh, and, and Bon Bon. I think Hopfrog as well. Yeah, Hopfrog is. You, you can see my uh, the, the, te- the tedium with which I view the, the comedic <laughs> stories, leaving out Bon Bon and Hopfrog. But yeah, for the but for the most part, you're all, right. I mean, it's almost all lies. Yeah, and and all of his most famous stories. Mm-hmm. Which you know, I mean, this is this is why people take him so autobiographically. I assume, yeah. or one of the reasons anyway, because when you're bombarded with these unnamed eyes, because they're always unnamed, um, what are you supposed to think? It's always an undescribed, unnamed almost like a camera, but a camera with a personality, you know, and, and an attitude who at the same time is telling you things that, that make you not quite sure whether or not you, you, you trust the the perspective you're being shown. And so there's this weird, almost inaccessibility, um, of, of the narrator, which I think makes a lot of readers uncomfortable and they really want to anchor that narrator in this, into someone and the one that they can find is Poe. Yeah. Mm. yeah. The, the other trick he loves, and this distances himself from the narrator a bit, is he, he likes to present things as, I mean, it's basically found footage, right? The, 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 the Blair Witch oh, yeah. Project paranormal activity at, uh, attitude way before those things existed. He says, well, I found, you know, I happened to find this manuscript. Uh, that's, why, that's why it's <laughs> MS found in a bottle. His one novel, uh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, is like that as well. And um, th- this is another thing he does. And that, that, that actually distances Poe, the author, from the narrator. But at the same time, allows you to have this first-person narration. 
And he often does that when the person in question falls off the edge of the world at the end of the story. <laughs> I mean, because that's, right. that's what happens. And therefore, presumably, is inaccessible. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's... Well, here's a question for you, Michael, and I, and this is something I really don't have any background to answer. Uh, it seems like, I mean, in, especially in the 18th century, but apparently even into the 19th century with Poe, you've got this sort of coy game that writers of first-person narratives play where, you know, I didn't write this, I found it. Whereas mm-hmm. now if someone would write a a first-person narrative, and I mean, I, I, Hunger Games immediately comes to mind because I recently watched it again because it's on Netflix. Uh, you know, there's no pretense of that sort made anymore. Is, is there a time when that turns the corner? Hmm. And again, I, that's an entirely unannounced question, listeners. I'm I'm ambushing him with it, but I figured he might be able to pull that one out of his hat. I'm thinking hard. David, do you have something? Well, I mean, while you're thinking, I mean, th- this actually shows up maybe even a lot more than people recognize even even today. Um, the epistolary novel, thanks to Bram Stoker, um, is having you know has had in some quarters kind of a uh, a renaissance a few a few prominent examples of that have come up um but what a lot of people don't recognize is that tolkien himself actually has a found manuscript backstory for the hobbit the lord of the rings and the silmarillion hmm. um he has this whole <laughs> and thus david yeah. brings tolkien even into this one <laughs> i was i was wondering how it was gonna happen yeah well yeah. <laughs> he has this whole story about how various bagginses you know, wrote all this stuff down and how it came down even into our own medieval era in which he found it and he's just translating it for us. That's interesting. You know, it's not foregrounded in the narrative itself, but I mean, it, it lies at the back of this. It, it, it's an interesting notion and it, I, I think it kind of reinforces um, the verisimilitude of the fantasy. Mm-hmm. See, I, I want to say, and I say this without having done any research, so I could be totally wrong. I want to say that it's the rise of psychological realism that that okay. pushes that to the background. All right, mm-hmm. all right. Because I know, for instance, I mean, the the Great Gatsby, right, is a first person narrator, and right. that I remember, it's not really a. There's no real pretense that this was, you know, handed to Fitzgerald. Right, no, it's mm-hmm. it's it's supposed to be like you're sitting down and talking to Nick Carraway. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that definitely would be in the period of psychological realism, so that, that makes some sense. Yeah, it's, it's just one of those things I was curious about, and since David brought that up, I figured I'd ask about it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question, because that is one of the... Uh... Uh, th- that's one of the defining characteristics of the early novel. They're always pretending it's not fiction. And, mm-hmm. and my, yeah. my my suspicion is that as the social prohibition against fiction lessens, people are much more willing to say, yeah, this is fiction. And, and until finally, you know, in the about 1950, you start getting very self-conscious assertions of the fictiveness of the fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that is, are you saying is, is Twilight written as an epistolary novel, David? Is that what you were saying? Oh no! What? What? No! Okay. <laughs> Not that I have any can, knowledge can, can, of. Well, you no, said yeah, it was the, making the a Hunger comeback. Games is the one I brought up. Michael, is that what you're talking is, about? That, is that an epistolary novel? It's not. It's it's all rendered in a uh, first person present tense. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, uh, I was thinking of, uh, have you guys heard of the Percy Jackson books? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, Rick Reardon has also written a series that's based in Egyptian mythology, but the, the form of storytelling, um, is that the narrative that, that you get is the result of a brother and sister passing a kind of dictaphone sort of audio recorder thing back and forth. Mm, okay. And so, and so it'll shift from one voice to another voice as they're passing this, um, this recorder, um, but, but between themselves. And so it's kind of, well, it, it's, it's like in Bram Stoker's Dracula when Dr. Seward is, you know, unlike the diaries of, of Jonathan Harker or the letters or the newspaper clippings, uh, Dr. Seward is actually dictating things into um, uh, a dictaphone, a phonograph. Yeah, Dracula, okay. uh, Dracula is a fairly formally inventive novel. People don't, yeah. uh, people don't remember that. Yeah. But, you know, but Poe's, Poe is one that, you know, helps kind of keep that epistolary thing alive, though ultimately we have to owe it, we owe that to the odious Pamela. <laughs> well, you Anyways. know, Poe, uh, have you either of you read Arthur Gordon Pym? I've read maybe the first 20 pages of it. first 20 pages mm-hmm. are about all that's any good. Um, but but that that novel has a mixture of forms as well. It becomes a series of diary entries after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, although it begins as a more conventional novel. And I'm, you know, because I am not particularly fond of Poe, I'm inclined to tack that up to his not editing the novel at all. <laughs> you know, he, he gave up on one form of it and just put it in another form and kept going without ever going back. Now, you know, it's it's very similar to what I say about Moby Dick, a novel I love, so take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll shift, uh, reluctantly shift from, from fiction and go on to, oh, well, some something that also needs treatment. And uh, when I consulted the contents of my complete tales and poems of Poe, um, I was actually also a little surprised to find out that he wrote roughly the same number of poems as as stories. But the the um, page count is, you know, I like mean, 20th. oh yeah, the page the page count is vastly different. But in terms of distinct pieces, um, it's roughly the same number. Um, so, you know, and some and some of these are fairly fairly well known, um, including one that's got a talking bird in it. <laughs> Um, has ruined the reputation so, of the noble and playful raven forevermore. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, well, I'm going to pitch this at Nathan first, but you'll get you'll get your say, Michael. Um, what should we say about Poe's verse and his stature as a poet um, in his own day and now? All right, well, a couple things. First of all, uh, as someone who hasn't taught American literature for close to 10 years now, uh, I think of the sort of giants of American poetry as Dickinson and Whitman in some order, mm-hmm. uh, at least in the 19th century. That That's where I tend to think. Uh, so, I mean, Poe, honestly, when, when I first started looking at the show notes prepping for the show, I couldn't think of any Edgar Allan Poe poems except for The Raven. Uh, that's sort of your standard rite of passage, high school English poetry lesson. 
Uh, and honestly, it's a poem I don't like very much because I think it <laughs> overplays the vowel sounds. Um, <laughs> it's a poem in love with its own form. Yes, and honestly, as I started to dig back into some Edgar Allan Poe verse, uh, I, I, start, I started to realize that that's why I don't much like Edgar Allan Poe as a verse writer, because uh, there's no doubt that he's aware of the sounds that words make. There's no doubt that he wants me to be aware of the sounds that words make. Uh, and so I'm going to commit a bit of character assassination here by means of recitation. Please, please uh, do the bells. Please do the bells. I, I give you the first stanza of the bells. Yay. Hear the sledges with the bells, silver bells. What a world of merriment their melody foretells. How they tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. <laughs> in the icy air of night, while the stars that oversprinkle, all the heavens seem to twinkle with a crystalline delight. Keeping time, 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 in a sort of runic rhyme. The tintinabulation that so musically wells from the bells, 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 from the jingling and the tinkling of the bells. <laughs> Goes on for like 75 more <laughs> yeah. lines, too. And no, I'm not going to recite the other stanzas because I'm already in pain. Um, you know, I, I never kind of... noticed it until you read it out just now. Is he making a joke on Tinter and Abby with that tintinabulation? Oh, goodness, mm. I don't know. It Ooh. could be. Maybe. But honestly, I mean, even something that, I mean, I, I assume has a slightly better critical re reputation, Annabelle Lee. I mean, again, I mean, you've got this, I think, insufferable uh, emphasis on vowel sounds. And again, I mean, if, I, I'm not going to read this one out loud because I can't read an Edgar Allan Poe poem straight. Uh, I always overplay those goofy vowel sounds. Uh, but, and uh, by the way, David, thank you for not making us recite Poe's verse at the outset Ooh. of this podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like I said, I mean, I, I think of uh, Whitman and Dickinson as my sort of giants of 19th century American poetry. Edgar Allan Poe, when he writes verse, I mean, I can imagine this sort of stuff selling to magazines. Uh, but as far as stuff that I hope people still read a hundred years from now uh none of this stuff makes my list uh so i mean <laughs> yeah. that that is you know the grumpy and untutored uh griping of a medievalist renaissance guy uh michael would you add anything to that assessment his poetry is dreadful <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not understand why anybody would like his poems. I, I, I There's a few that are pretty good. I'm trying to find one here. I like Sonnet to Science all right, but that is I, I like it more as part of a general romantic movement against science. Mm -hmm. um, he has one stanza from the poem Israfel that I like. Yes, heaven is thine, but this is a world of sweets and sours. Our flowers are merely flowers, and the shadow of thy perfect bliss is the sunshine of ours. I, I, I kind of like that for its platonic underpinnings. I don't think it's a great poem, but you're right. He is obsessed with the sound of his own words to the detriment oh, of man. any kind of meaning. And the other thing, if you ever try to scan Poe, it is, it, it's just the worst. He's constantly shifting meters, and you could say, oh, he's so formally inventive, except he's not. He's lazy. <laughs> he wrote the poems quickly and couldn't be bothered to put them in order. 
<laughs> he's he's a, he's a writer without discipline. Uh, okay. I I I will say that that um when when I was much well a, a teenager and I discovered in this book of poetry I discovered the bells. Um, I loved it because I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> and by the time you get to the end of it, it's it's like it's like the the voice in the poem has just driven himself crazy with his own doggerel. <laughs> and I kind of lo- I, I I don't know I I kind of thought that was a meta moment. I, I I always read the bells as a joke, and I kind of thought Poe was in on it and wanted us to be in on it too, which is why he ended it crazy. But that's that would be that would be suggesting that he knows how to tell a joke. And if you've ever read his humorous short stories, you know that he can't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I think I, I give. <laughs> I give him maybe a, a little more, a, a little more credit for for having fun, um, having fun with himself, and maybe even at his own reader's expense. Um, I sometimes get the idea that he that he he thought of himself as vastly smarter than his ordinary reader. Uh, yeah. You think? And yeah, and that he would occasionally do stuff that just seems to me transparently kind of stupid in verse because he knows the saps will read it. <laughs> you know, I, the, I, I have a hard time rationalizing some of that poetry were it not for the fact he's like, this is drack, but they'll buy it. I tried to read through his poems a couple weeks ago just to do it. You know, I'd never, I'd, my, 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 my class on Poe, uh, Dr. Anderson said that his poetry was terrible and we wouldn't be reading it. So I, I didn't read it in that class. So I went, I went back and tried to read it a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, I couldn't, it's 70 pages in the library of America edition. And I don't think I got through a quarter of it and I skipped around. And then he has these long poems that are supposedly philosophical and they're they're just awful. They're awful, awful, awful. And maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe he's just throwing it down there because he knows the saps will buy it. In which case, I mean, man, the American literary establishment bought it hook, line, and sinker, didn't they? So Ugh. so Edgar Allan Poe is proto-Dada. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I could see them hanging out and getting along. <laughs> you know, the French, the French love him. Yeah. Ever since Baudelaire, the French have loved him. Have you ever have you have you guys read nineteenth that kind of nineteenth century popular magazine verse in any other context but this? No. Okay, I, that I have. I've stumbled upon a few of these. Oh my gosh, it's it's just routinely awful. Worse than Poe. <laughs> um. Yes, worse than Poe because not only is it bad, it's also uninteresting. I mean, at least the bells is terrible in an interesting way. I mean, at least he's not, you know, you don't have to read through the whole thing of somebody sentimentally rhyming moon and June the whole time. It's true, <laughs> though. He has those, too. Believe me. He has some, anyway. some of his some of his poems are just outrageously sentimental. Well, that, oh, that f- f- fair enough. Annabelle even Lee, when they're I sentimental, mean, they're sentimental in a trippy way. I mean, Annabelle Lee. Good Lord. <laughs> we uh, we but, owe him thanks for Annabelle Lee, if only because it seemed to have sparked the novel Lolita. Mm-hmm. So even if even if none of his other poems were ever worth anything, the fact that Annabelle Lee led to Lolita means that we owe him something. 
Right. I, I I can I can agree with that. Okay. Well, I I just wanted to point out that that he if he was writing for the market, the market was terrible. Well, well the market's <laughs> always terrible. Yeah, you remember yeah. a Christian fiction episode? Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> what's the best selling What's the best selling novel of the nineteenth uh, century? The Wide Wide World. I can't even remember the uh, the author author's name, but it's like a seven hundred page sentimental novel. Of course, the the public always has terrible taste. Didn't that didn't that star Will Smith? Yeah. Okay. Uh... <laughs> I would right. I would enjoy well, hearing well, a sentimental well, Will Smith rap. Please no. Will Smith is Edgar Allan Poe in Annabelle Lee. Um. No. Well, we've actually kind of segued into my next question, which I'll pitch at you, Michael. Clever, that. Um, we kind of ought to say something about just the stature that Poe has in pop culture, completely divorced from, you know, terrible poetry and whatever. Um, but especially in film, um, both, you know, in movie theaters and on television. And this has been going on for years. So, I mean, are there notable, what notable examples of, of that would you point to? And can you explain why this, why this fascination with Poe? Why don't we see like Emily Dickinson movies? Uh, yeah. the, the fascination with Poe is because Poe is a rite of passage. He is the author you, you read when you're 13 years old, just after you've watched Edward Scissorhands for the first time and a couple years before you smoke a clove cigarette for the first time. <laughs> he he is one of the few canonical authors whom people read for fun although god help me i have no idea why um now let me tell you how bad my 11th grade american literature teacher was we were supposed to read fall of the house of usher it was in our textbook i suppose the county probably mandated we read it we did not read that book instead we watched the vincent price film Oh, <laughs> Follow the House of Usher. If you've never seen the Vincent Price film of Follow the House of Usher, it is worth your time, although for none of the reasons it should be. Uh, it, it is part of a general series, I believe, of Vincent Price adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, Mr. Price plays, of course, Roderick Usher. He plays him as Vincent Price. If you've ever wondered, uh, if you've ever thought that story was super about incest... Uh, you should go watch that movie because that movie makes the, I would say, heavily buried the subtext of incest in Fall of the House of Usher into the only text. And so it, 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 <laughs> it, it by no means follows the plot even of the story, let alone the feel. And I, I, will, I will stand up and say Fall of the House of Usher is his best story. I mean, it, it really sets a mood and follows it wonderfully. Um, solid. Uh, that movie is a turd. <laughs> so um i that is to be honest with you the only adaptation of edgar Allan poe i've ever seen is the vincent price fall of the house of usher and it kept me away from all the other ones now there's also that that movie that came out a couple years ago the raven starring john cusack of all people is edgar Allan poe last year actually was it last year man time goes by huh or doesn't go by <laughs> and, and I, I believe the point there is somebody is it, it, like a serial killer is killing people by the uh 
plots of Poe's stories and the police call him in to help? Because really, man, Poe's not his crazy characters. He's Auguste Dupin. Awesome. Did you see that movie, David? No. Oh. <laughs> I, I hadn't even heard of that movie. Oh, you're lucky. No, I, I, I heard of it and I, I saw a trailer and said, nope. <laughs> I'm kind of sorry that I have heard of that movie. <laughs> I kind of want to watch it because, but you know, the thing is, it's like it's more than two hours long. I believe. Oh, if it were 83 minutes, I would watch it in a minute. You know, sit down. You know, no, no problem. But I, I, I can't see devoting two hours of my life to The Raven, starring John Cusack. Mm-hmm. Are Are you following the following? No, I heard it was bad, so I don't watch it. Okay. Is that is that, that poish? Well, uh, it's the the backstory is that there was a a college English professor who turns Poe themed serial killer gets put in jail by Kevin Bacon, and then <laughs> basically develops this internet fan base that has now set out on some kind of creepy cult vendetta against Kevin Bacon. So it's basically like it's basically like attack of the pole killer groupies kind of thing. So I, so it's a Poe copycat and the copycats who copycat him. Yeah, that's yeah. Talk about a representation like a of a representation. It's like a tenth generation Xerox or something. Oh. I heard no, it wasn't I mean, very good. I, so I'm I haven't it. seen it, and I've and I've actually had some people recommend it to me, and apparently, you know, I, I I've heard you know some people whose 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 taste I, I generally would uh, would at least listen to, if 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 not trust, um, have liked it, and so I I thought about it, but then I. Again, watched a trailer online and said, "You know, this looks a little too slashy for me." It's supposed to be very, very violent for yeah, network television. Which, well, which I'm uncomfortable with, but you, you know, there is uh, there is one great adaptation of Poe. Mm-hmm. That is the Simpsons version of the Raven. <laughs> <laughs> they they treat yeah. it with an appropriate level of disrespect, and uh, it works pretty well. You know, there's a Vincent Price Raven too. Well, I, that, that is like I said uh, during the '70s. Either Price or one of his handlers decided that they should just make a Vincent Price version of everything Poe ever did. Yeah, and some of the most amazingly successful stuff that Vincent Price ever did, actually. Um, but that movie stars Vincent Price, a very old Boris Karloff, and a very young Jack Nicholson. Yeah. As basically dueling wizards. Anyway, I mean, there's not a whole lot of plot in The Raven that couldn't be shot in 15 minutes in a single room. So apparently they had to come up with something else to kind of pad it out, I guess. You you think? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I I, I love it. Oh, my word. His last name in that movie? Craven. Yes. Oh. Yeah. They. Oh, and and uh, and uh, uh, Boris Karloff is Doctor Scarabus. Nice. And, uh, and, <laughs> and that's how he sounds. I'm Doctor Scarabus. <laughs> I turned you into a raven. Anyway, it's awesome. <laughs> Thank you, you for not making us watch that movie for this uh, podcast, David. 
it it would have been it would have been a good a good group project there. I think. No, I, I was just waiting to see what Michael would talk about on this one because when I read this question, I thought I have not seen a single Poe movie. So I. <laughs> oh my god! Go go to go to IMDb and look just just look for Poe, and it's practically. In in every decade, there's been at least a dozen TV, independent, and big screen movies around the world, not just of his stories, but with Poe as an actual character. I'll be. Um, he's uh, there's two or three different mystery writers who are writing series right now with Poe as the detective. <laughs> you know, I read one of them. He met P.T. Barnum. It was neat. P.T. Barnum? <laughs> is well, he yeah, immortal? I mean, say what? Is he immortal? Didn't, isn't P.T. Barnum from the 20th century? No, P.T. P.T. Barnum is, uh, P.T. Barnum's 19th century, I think. But, I mean, maybe, maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but I think the idea was that, hey, Are we're going right? to pick a famous guy to be our detective, and we're going to put him in the same story with all these other famous 19th century guys. It's like the uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yes, except with historical characters. Yeah, I guess that's mm. true. Yeah, you know, you're right. P.T. Barnum is, is roughly contemporary with Poe. I was, uh, I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. Well, I mean, his circus stuck around for a while, too. <laughs> but not with him in it. Anywho, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's lots and there's, there's lots of Poe. Um, which I don't know, maybe, maybe you just, been, you've just been watching the wrong things. I, I, but I, I was, I was one of those, I never got around to the clove cigarette, um, phase, but you know, I always loved Poe. And so I would, when I f found Poe themed things in the video store or whatever, I'd check them out and usually hate them, but you know, I'd watch them anyway because it had Poe in <laughs> anyways. Well, we'll, we'll shift. We'll shift from pop culture to academic culture. Um, return to a, the classroom for our, for our last question. We can put on our English professor hats. Not like we've taken them off at any point, but we'll just wear them more emphatically right now. <laughs> um, which mine's still a mortar board, but I guess you guys get like poofy doctor hats. Yeah, I ordered my TAM as it's called today, and I yeah. will be recording every future episode of the podcast wearing it. <laughs> awesome so Poe always seems to be my student one of my students favorite authors anyway and when I teach mm -hmm. him into like an intro to lit course they're always like yay we read him in high school and I'm like yes I know that's why I included him um, but often their ways of reading him are are frankly quite bad um, as we've alluded to up to this point um what can you say, good or bad, useful, not useful, about Poe in the classroom, especially in that kind of intro to lit sort of setting? Why would why would you want to teach Poe, having said all the things that we've said? And I'll throw this at you first, Nathan. Well, what fascinates me is that Poe breaks down the conventional distinction between pop culture and high literature. Mm. Uh, and this is something that my students are seldom ready for in an intro to lit setting. Uh, they're expecting that we are going to read serious texts, and to them, serious means with a moral at the end. Uh, so when we reach the end of, you know, Ligia or Casco Amontillado, uh, you know, I mean, they are just 
utterly confused and not a little bit scandalized that, you know, there is no moral lesson to be gleaned from it. Uh, and, you know, it's a fascinating thing because, you know, I mean, the sorts of moves that you've been alluding to, guys, uh, where you compare what Poe is doing to something that horror movies are doing or to, uh, you know, what television series are doing uh, is really a handy little device for getting them to think about literature, especially, I mean, prior to the advent of television uh, as first and foremost a medium of entertainment, uh, you know, which again is, is sort of beyond their scope. They think of literature as something that people do who don't watch a lot of TV. Um, <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, that's how a lot of them think about it. Uh, so, sure. I mean, you know, as far as, you know, uh, the role that Poe plays in my intro to literature class, that's generally the work I put him to. As far as bad readings of him, uh, oh, where does one start? Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, really the autobiographical move that we've been talking about is the most common one, uh, you know, to turn the and Lygia is one that I've taught the most often. So, I mean, that's the one I go to, you know, uh, you know, did he really, you know, go crazy and think that his new girlfriend was his dead girlfriend and, you know, jazz like that. Um, you know, I, I, I always have to try to convince these students that that's just not an entirely interesting question to ask, uh, that what we've got is a, <laughs> a figure called the persona or the narrator, uh, who is distinct from the guy who is collecting a paycheck for publishing this story. Uh, so, I mean, those are, you know, my, uh, general, experiences with Poe. And then the other one, which I find uh, amusing in retrospect, but always infuriating at the moment is uh, when I try to teach my students, you know, some John Donne or some George Herbert or some Robert Herrick. And, you know, they compare those, what I consider 17th century giants uh, infavorably to the Raven. (laughs) 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 And I, you, you know, you know the the raven is useful, uh, really only for teaching about meter because it has that unusual. Yeah, meter. yeah, and you know, I a, after I choke back the vulgarities that I want to spew at them, I say, "Well, Great. actually, <laughs> actually, the raven's kind of a turd." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, my, Michael, do you ever teach Poe anymore? teach him an American lit because I feel like I have to, but I usually complain about him. <laughs> he is one of two authors. I actively complain about teaching. And the other one is Dickinson, by the way, who I've also never been able to stop. Really? Oh, yeah. see, I love Dickinson. Maybe, anyway, maybe um, I'll come around on her eventually. Like I came around. I used to not like Whitman at all. And now I really love Whitman. So, you know, okay. maybe, all yeah. and see, those are my two favorite 19th century American poets. Maybe you're, maybe, maybe you're right. And I'll come around on Dickinson, but it hasn't happened <laughs> so far. And I teach her every year. All right. Um, I talk about the unreliable narrator. I, you know, I talk about some of the things we've talked about today about his treatment of madness. I talk about him as an exemplar of dark romanticism, as kind of a revolt against the transcendentalist whom he hated. Less, it seems, for philosophical reasons than uh, just because they were kind of a club he wasn't a part of. <laughs> he used to he used to call the Boston literary scene the Frog Pond. <laughs> I kind of love him. Yeah, I mean, he's lovable in some ways, and sometimes you just want to hit him. 
I think so he's the, a hipster, basically. I think the worst thing I ever did was read, and and I I, I, I want to say this carefully because I don't want to make it sound like I didn't appreciate the class. But the worst thing that ever happened to me in terms of liking Poe was having to read all those stories in one semester. Because mm-hmm. uh, always oh, so tedious after a while. You know, I'd say one out of fifteen of them is interesting. And if you just read one at a time, you got no problem. But when you try to sit down and read them all, and especially once you insert the poetry, there's just the emperor has no clothes as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Well, I mean, but after a while, isn't it kind of like, isn't it not so much that the emperor doesn't have any clothes as it is that the emperor actually has fewer clothes than you might think. And you start recognizing it more. And so what did have an impact the first couple times you read it, it's like, you're like, Oh, this old thing again, really? You know, I don't know a lot of authors that sustain, reading their reading their whole capacious corpus you know all at once like that yeah yeah that's probably true i mean if you want to make the case against single author classes mm-hmm. i mean I, I i've taken several of them i took shakespeare but i mean comparing anybody to shakespeare's a problem i took faulkner and i didn't get tired of faulkner okay maybe 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 my maybe my my lame defense is no, I mean, I really playing. think he you're is being the... very charitable, David. But I think that you might be overplaying <laughs> him. I, I think he is at the very least at the bottom of the American literary canon. There, there is there. If I had to reject one person from the American literary canon, it would certainly be Poe, followed by Twain. Um, as much as I hate to say that, but that's another Oof. episode. Oh, so so in other words, I like all of the American authors that you hate, Michael. Apparently. I mean, with the exception of Poe, who infuriates me just as much. Apparently, uh, <laughs> I, and I need to, and I, I need to, I need to give Twain some more time. But, right? Yeah, I, I think yeah. I think Twain is supremely overrated. Wow. Sorry. And I and I and I get to be the one who likes Poe and Twain. I'm sure three <laughs> we, I'm sure three weeks from now, uh, Grubbs is going to have a Twain episode just to make me mad. <laughs> Except, unlike my hatred for Poe, I feel shame about not liking Mark Twain. <laughs> okay okay fair enough i i will admit i, mean, I might be wrong on that one but uh with poe I mean, man cut him out th- there and, and how did he there ever get I feel how, about, yeah how did he ever get to be a high school classic his his language is so difficult mm-hmm. impenetrable uh, honestly i th- i think it's the the simple bizarre um uh weird fascination of the subject matter you know i i I think there's you know reading the telltale heart or reading cask of amontillado just the what it is is enough initially to kind of catch you know to catch the eye and for for you know a be, a beginning reader, when I was a kid, I wasn't choosing books because of whether or not they were well written. I was choosing them on the basis of whether or not Encyclopedia Brown was on the cover or a dragon. Mm-hmm. I know. would put Donald Sobel in the American canon before I would put Poe. No, <laughs> 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 no. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I I I guess my point is it there's a kind of accessibility that's created not because the style is accessible but because there's something 
there's something fascinating or something intriguing or something horrifying, whatever, that is the subject matter. And the subject matter is enough to kind of lure the reader into putting forth the effort to understand. Right. I mean, it's the same reason that high schoolers like Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth, but don't like Hamlet as much, right? Because, I mean, the the succession of the son to the position of the father isn't near as accessible as, you know, teenage lust and witches, witches, witches. It's true. <laughs> and, and, and they like uh, they like Macbeth for all the wrong reasons. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but starting off with liking things for the wrong reasons means that it's possible for you to learn to love it for the right reasons, too. And so I, to me, I think it's kind of a good starter uh, or a, a gateway drug. Can I say that? Sure. <laughs> Just um, Okay. Now, I like it in intro lit for um, – I like to use Poe, well, like you said, Michael, for, for the unreliable narrator. Um, and for, you know, kind of genre considerations, I like to use fall of the house of usher as part of a, um, as part of a unit about the Gothic and, you know, they read it alongside of, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's speckled band, which is basically a Gothic horror story with a, with a, uh, <laughs> an actually viable, competent protagonist. <laughs> who manages to intervene before uh, before the horrific end, which otherwise might have been much more usher like. Um, you know, I like I like I like those, um, and and sometimes the, those are ones in which I can I can kind of approach um, use them use them as a w- ways of approaching different kinds of criticism. Um, you know, for instance, in Cask of Amontillado. Um, it's set in the middle of a carnival. <laughs> okay, so we can we can kind of talk about that sort of thing, and we can talk about historical context, and we can talk about what's this whole Mason thing that's going on there. And anyway, I mean, the, there's, you know, it, I, I I like it for that reason. It gives me a chance to talk about other stuff in the middle of a story that they're already kind of interested in, with a with an author that they feel safe around. You know. And that's useful. They feel safe talking about Poe. They feel like they can say something about him in a way that they don't necessarily feel about, I don't know, Gawain and the Green Knight or something. Or even Hawthorne. Or, yeah, or even Hawthorne, because he's so serious. <laughs> yeah. But it's okay on the first day of Poe, you know, of first day of Telltale Heart is like, this guy is really weird and creepy. And I'm like, yes, yes, he is. Let's talk about that. <laughs> and we can't. Anyway, that's why I like him. But, yeah. Well, that, dear listeners, um, unless you guys have anything more to toss in, that, dear listeners, was our Poe episode. Um, I, I hope, hope this conversation. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I hope he's not completely depressed. I mean, if, if you know, we, we did just kind of spend the last hour mostly whipping Poe. But, <laughs> but you know, Poe seems to be fascinated by scenes of horror and suffering, so maybe, maybe that's okay. Um, who's, who's, uh, who's at the helm next week? I am. I can't Dr. recall. Dr. Farmer is. Right. Oh, oh, okay. Our intro now calls us intellectuals, so next week we're going to try to figure out what that is. Hey, hey. 
Ah, intele- intellectuals. Or intellectuals, if you prefer. Intellectuals. <laughs> However you want to pronounce it. Intellectuals. If you're intellectual, does that mean that you read between things? You're liminal. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> Interstitial. I think that's in the intro, too. I think I just strung together a whole bunch of polysyllabic words that sounded cool and recorded an intro. Well, we may go all Derrida on you. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, uh, next week, listeners, look forward to our intellectual conversation about intellectualisming or something. Anywho, um, if we've left out your favorite post story, and we probably have, and if we've said bad things about your favorite post story, which we almost certainly have, um, let us know how you feel. Feel free to vent. It's okay. It'll, you'll feel better afterwards. Um, places for venting include our email address, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or the show notes on our blog, uh, christianhumanist.org slash chb. Um, you, can, you can post in the comments on the show note there. Or you can post them on our Facebook wall. Um, Though, uh, uh, be nice. And even if you hate us for, for, for bad-mouthing Poe, then you, you could still give us a thumbs up for talking about him, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> and, and go watch a Vincent Price movie and you'll feel better. Um, in the meanwhile, uh, I wish you the grandest of weeks. I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, leaving you with words of Martin Luther to let your sin be strong, but... Let your faith be stronger.